Good morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for you and for all that you are to us. We thank you for your word where you reveal your truth to us. And we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you'd reveal yourself to us in fresh and new ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Little boys love dinosaurs. I don't know if anyone's got a little boy and they love dinosaurs, but my one does. My elder son, Samuel, loves them. He knows all their names. And since he was about two or three, since he could talk, he could tell me names of dinosaurs I never knew existed, like Teresinosaurus or Kenterosaurus. He could tell me about the Jurassic and the Cretaceous periods. And he could tell me about herbivores and carnivores. And as a young toddler, he'd eat pretty much anything we put in front of him. But as his dinosaur dictionary grew wider, his food tastes grew narrower. He became a fussy eater. I don't know if anyone can relate to that. He'd gone from loving food in general to only wanting to eat specific types of food. And he was particularly keen on white starchy foods like rice, potatoes, bread and pasta. He loves pasta. Still does. He'd turned from an omnivore into what we call a carbivore. Anything with carbs. When it comes to bread, though, he's a bit of a purist, preferably in its least healthy white form, without much in the way of a crust. Cut those off, please. And um, not wholemeal, and certainly not granary with any bird seeds in or anything like that. However, despite not really liking crusts, he's quite partial to a baguette or tiger bread. Do you know what I mean by tiger bread? Well, there's a story about tiger bread. And back in 2011, there was a young girl called Lily, aged three and a half. And she looked at tiger bread and thought, doesn't really look like the stripes of a tiger to me. Looks more like a giraffe. So she wrote a letter to Sainsbury's saying, I think it should be called tiger bread. And Sainsbury's employee, Chris, aged 27 and a third, replied saying, that it was, in fact, a brilliant suggestion, and the bread does look more like the blotches on a giraffe rather than the stripes on a tiger. So he sent her a gift card saying, thank you for your suggestion, and Sainsbury's promptly renamed tiger bread to be giraffe bread. So if you shop at Sainsbury's and buy giraffe bread, remember that it was renamed because a -a three-and-a-half-year-old girl wrote a letter and made a difference. A -a three-and-a-half-year-old caused a £4 billion company to rename their product and made a difference. And there are numerous stories in the Bible where a seemingly insignificant person makes a big difference. Our previous sermon series looked at the book of Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabite woman who made a choice to stick by her mother-in-law, Naomi. And God blessed her with a son, Obed, whose son was Jesse, whose son was David. And David made a big difference by defeating the giant Goliath with five small stones. And he went on to become king of Israel. And both Ruth and David are in the line of Jesus. And today we're looking at a time when Jesus used a seemingly insignificant person to miraculous effect. So let's turn to John chapter 6 and read from the beginning. Story should come up on the screen behind me. Some time after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now to many of you, this is probably a familiar story. You've read it before, you've heard it before. It's a well-known account from the Bible. In fact, it's the only miracle in the Bible, apart from Jesus' resurrection, to appear in all four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in addition to this story... There's also the story of the feeding of the 4,000, which appears in Matthew and Mark. So growing up, when I was read Bible stories by my mum or my dad, or when I was looking at it myself, I got a bit confused about these two stories. So let's just look at these two to find out, are they different events, or are these two accounts of the same event? Well, the feeding of the 5,000 was in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the feeding of the 4,000 is just in Matthew and Mark. One has 5,000 men, the other 4,000 men. At the feeding of the 5,000, there were five barley loaves and two small fishes. And at the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven loaves and a few small fish. And at the leftovers, how many leftovers, how many baskets of leftovers were there at the feeding of the 5,000? Thank you for listening. And they were small baskets, it says. It says it uses the word Greek kofinos. And that's kind of a relatively small wicker basket, about the size of a, of a backpack. So they picked up 12 backpacks of food at the feeding of the 5,000. At the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven baskets. Now, these were larger baskets. This is from the Greek word spurus. And this is kind of a large reed basket, much bigger, like a hamper. In fact, in, in the book of Acts, when Paul is uh, dropped down the wall in Damascus, he's dropped down in a basket called a kofinos. So this one is big enough to hold a man. So seven huge baskets from the feeding of the 4,000 and 12 small baskets at the feeding of the 5,000. And later on in Mark 8, it's emphasized that these are two distinct events when Jesus discusses them with his disciples. Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they replied. So, okay, two distinct events, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000 today. 
Or are we? Because in verse 10, Jesus tells the disciples, make the people sit down. The word people here is anthropous, where we get the word anthropology from. So it's talking about people. And later in the same verse, John notes in brackets there are about 5,000 men there. Men is the Greek word andres. So John is using two different words, anthropous for people and 5,000 andres. So he's actually, when he talks about the feeding of the 5,000, this is the feeding of the 5,000 men plus wives and children, as Roberta mentioned earlier. So it's actually not the feeding of the 5,000, it's the feeding of the lot more than 5,000. The feeding of the 10 or 20,000. Not quite the same ring to it, so they probably stuck with the headline, feeding of the 5,000. But to put this into context, we're talking about the number of people that would finish at the National Athletic Stadium down the road at Crystal Palace. That seats 16,000 people. So 16,000 people is roughly the number that were in front of Jesus that he fed. The miracle took place by the Sea of Galilee. And John tells us that Jesus has just crossed it. It doesn't say us where he's crossed from and to, but he's just crossed it. The Sea of Galilee is a vast expanse of water. It's about eight miles wide. That's about the distance from the Royal Albert Hall to the O2, or the Millennium Dome, as those of us over 30 call it. And it's about 13 miles from top to bottom. That's from Crystal Palace Park in the south up to Alexandra Palace Park in the north. 33 miles in circumference. It's a big lake, hence it's called a sea. Now, scholars haven't determined exactly where this took place. It was likely in Bethsaida, Galilee, up in the northwest of the map, just to the west of Capernaum. And the people followed Jesus across or around the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus has just crossed from them, having performed miracles on the other side of the lake, and he's trying to get away. He's probably trying, most likely tired and wanting to relax, having just done those miracles, having been around people. And in the book of Matthew, it tells us that John the Baptist had recently been beheaded, had recently died. Jesus' cousin had died, and he was probably wanting to rest and grieve with his friends or on his own. So he goes up the mountain. This is just before the Passover, the biggest and first festival of the Jewish calendar. This is kind of Christmas time. So he's, he's been busy. He's suffered a grievance. He's just coming up to the busiest time of the year. And he wants to be on his own. And the people follow him. The crowd pursue Jesus. And the disciples, in Matthew's account, they try and usher the people away. They try and shoo them away. But Jesus says, no, let them come. He welcomes them. He doesn't turn them away. And he doesn't turn us away. He doesn't ignore us. When we seek him, he's not too tired to speak to us. He's not too tired to welcome us. He restores us. Isaiah tells how God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, it says, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen? When we're low, when we're not in a great place, as some of us doubtless are today, when we're struggling, Jesus doesn't shy away. He doesn't retreat to a solitary place. He welcomes us with open arms. He gives us strength to carry on 
to run and not grow weary, to walk and not be faint. And after all their walking, the crowd who have pursued Jesus would probably be a bit faint themselves. They'd probably be a bit peckish. So Jesus turns to Philip, and Philip was probably from that area. It says he was from Bethsaida. And so he asked Philip where they should get some food to feed the hungry hordes. Now, Philip's probably thinking, well, you know, there's a shop down the road. I could go and get some. But hold on, there are 15,000 people here. This is going to cost like 10 grand to feed everyone. This is going to cost half a year's wages, he says. And that's only to give a mouthful to each person. And then Andrew comes to Philip's rescue. And he says, I've got a young lad here with five loaves and two fishes. Now, before we go on, everyone, I'd just like you to imagine what the five loaves and two fishes look like. You all got a picture in your mind what they look like? Okay, so reading this story as a child, I don't really remember the additional details that John adds in about them being five small barley loaves or two small fish. I always imagined five nice fat loads of bread, like, like, like a split tin or a farmhouse like you'd see in a baker's window. I imagined a nice, big, fat, fresh couple of trout, like, you know, this ones that you see in the supermarket surrounded by the ice, the ones that make you want to buy the fish, even if, like me, you don't really like fish. Looks tempting. But I don't know if this is down to childhood illustrations in Bibles or just my imagination. But the loaves we're talking about did not resemble large loaves of tiger, giraffe, or any other animal-inspired wheat-based product. These loaves are made of coarse barley. This was a staple of the poor, much less expensive than wheat. The loaves were unleavened barley, flatbread, more like pitters or chapatis. These are not a large loaves of bread. As for the fish, these were going to be small or dried in some way, maybe smoked or pickled, something like sardines or anchovies. So that image you may have had of five big loaves of bread and two nice, fat, fresh fish that wouldn't have lasted an hour in the Middle Eastern heat. It was nothing like that. It was a small amount of food. It was a meager portion that would have fed a single person, but not much more. But what does the boy do with those gifts, with, those, with that food? He gives it to Jesus. This young lad among 5,000 men and women and children hands over his food to Jesus. It's not a sumptuous banquet of food. These are meager loaves, the preserve of the poor. He wouldn't have fed a handful of people, yet Jesus turns it into something that can feed an army. And Jesus calls us to be generous. He calls us to give. We're asked to give out of what we've got. We're not asked to give 20 loaves or 100 fish if we've only got five loaves and two fish. We're not called to go into debt and feed a whole army out of half a year's salary. He doesn't need that. Jesus can feed so many on so little. And we are called to be generous. And it's not just with our finances or our material possessions. Jesus calls us to give out of our time and out of our abilities. If everyone in the church of this size just gave out of their wallets, the church would be a wealthy church, but it wouldn't really be a healthy church. We all have a significant part to play in church life. And when we serve However insignificant it may seem, God can use it 
to serve many and to bless many because little in the hands of Jesus is always more than enough. So whatever you have to contribute, God can use it. When you serve by giving your time to look after the children, you are serving God and you are serving the parents of those children by enabling them to come and sit in the service and to worship God and to listen to his word. When you serve by getting up early and to serve on Simon's favorite duty out in the car park, and you're there on a rainy, wet, cold morning in the middle of winter, you are serving those people who are coming for the first time, who don't know where to park. You are serving the people who can't walk as far. When you come on a Wednesday night to help out at the feast, you are serving the homeless. And when you're generous and give money to the life of the church or to the building fund, you are serving God by enabling his community, his church community, to be blessed, to grow, and to reach more people. So when you come to the church and are generous with your gifts, you are helping to increase the health of the church and the local community. Just as the boy served that crowd of 15,000 people by giving what he had, so we are called to be generous with what we have. Now, we don't even know that boy's name. Yet over 2,000 years later, we are still talking about him. All because he had something. He didn't have much. He had a teeny portion of food, but he gave it to Jesus. Because little in the hands of Jesus is always more than enough. And I'm going to tell you a story about a boy called Sparky. A picture of Sparky will come up on the screen. Now, Sparky wasn't very good at school. One year, he failed every subject. He was particularly poor at maths and English and physics. He wasn't all that blessed at sports either. Uh, He once played in the golf team for the school, and he played so badly the team lost the match. Throughout his youth, he wasn't really that social. He wasn't unpopular. People didn't dislike him, but nobody paid much attention to him. If someone outside of school said hello to him, he'd be taken aback. He never dated. He never asked a girl out. He was afraid of being turned down didn't bother him particularly. He just decided to make it through life the best he could and not really worry about what other people thought of him. He did, however, have a hobby. And when he was in his room, he'd draw and read cartoons. He particularly liked to draw his own cartoons. Not that anyone thought they were any good. He submitted them when he was at high school to the school yearbook and they were rejected. He applied for a job, for his dream job at Walt Disney. And they turned him down. He was disappointed, but he wasn't surprised. It was just another rejection in his life. He changed tack and he tried telling his own story in cartoons. Childhood of misadventures of a little boy for things for whom things didn't really go to plan. A chronic underachiever, if you like. This cartoon character has now become known by the whole world. This unpopular boy whose work was rejected not only by his school yearbook but by Disney Studios themselves was called Charles Monroe Sparky Schultz, creator of the little boy whose kite never flies, Charlie Brown, and his pet dog Snoopy in the Peanuts comic book strip. Sparky used his gifts. He was rejected, but he persevered. Refined his gifts over time. He used them. He tried. He persevered. So what gifts has God given you? What can you do that others can't? How can you make a difference to your friends or in your church 
community. You may be thinking that you haven't really got any gifts, but you have. And you might not have discovered what they are, but maybe you just need to give something a go. Maybe you need to work with the young children. Maybe you need to serve in the car park. Maybe you need to be on the welcome team. You just have to persevere and keep trying and not giving up. Because you can make a difference. With what God has given you, you can change lives. And God has a plan for each and every one of us. A plan to prosper us and not to harm us. A plan for a hope and a future. The plan God has for you is unique. It's a plan that no one else on this planet can do because you are the only person who has this exact skill set, who has lived the life that you have lived. And so you are unique. And what you have and who you are can make a difference that no one else can. Now each Christmas, through Big Red Box, the church provides food hampers for locals in the community who would otherwise go without. Over the last five years, over 3,500 boxes have been distributed in the community. That's over £100,000 worth of food. And it wasn't one person that donated £100,000. It's because of the individual contributions of so many people. The food contributions. And it's not just the, the trolley loads of food or the boxes that people give, which are amazing and incredibly generous. But it's because of the, the person that donates the tin of soup or the packet of pasta. It all makes a difference. All the donations are essential, and they all go and are combined to make a bigger difference together. Every single donation goes to local people in southeast London at Christmas. But it's not just about the food donations. It's about the time donations. People give up their time to collect the food at the supermarkets, to pack the food. We had packing last year in Lee in the basement. We had packing over there. We had packing in the hall. And then there are people that drive the vans to move the boxes, to go to the social services or the charities so that they can then distribute the food. And it's then the social workers or the people there who then give the food out to those who need it the most. Every person who participates in Big Red Box and who receives one is significant to God. And you are significant to God. There are things that Jesus has planned for you that you don't even know what they are. So how can you make a difference? Are you using your gifts as best you can to make a difference? You may not have heard about it, but there's a little event called the Olympics that has recently started. Did anyone watch the Olympics ceremony? Did anyone watch it live? Wow. Okay, you haven't got kids? Um, okay. So we, watched, we recorded it and we watched it yesterday. And for the first time, the Olympic Committee has presented an award called the Olympic Laurel Award. This is for outstanding contribution by an Olympian. And it's presented to a Kenyan called Kipchigo Kano. Shout out for Kenya, love it. Now he's a middle distance runner who won golds in 1968 and 1972. This guy is a gifted runner, right? He was the best in the world. He won gold medals, he won championships. He was gifted. But he didn't stop there. When he got back to Kenya... He wanted to do more. He wanted to make a difference. And so he set up primary school and a high school for orphans to educate them, to give them a start, to give them a better chance in life. He set up a training center for runners in Kenya. He used his gifts to make a difference. He's in his 70s now, and he's still involved with all of these organizations. 
And last night in front of billions, billions of people, he was given an award for it and he gave the glory to God. As Martin Luther King said, my job is to do the best I can. The rest is in God's hands. Jesus then takes the bread and the fishes and he gives thanks for them and then distributes it to the people. And everyone had enough to eat. Everyone. There weren't a few thousand here or a few hundred over there that were hungry. Everyone was fed as much as they wanted. This is not some miracle of sharing where everyone was so happy to see Jesus that they decided to open up their picnic hampers and share out a bit of brie to their friends and people sitting around them. This wasn't a sharing where people got a morsel of food, kind of like a communion as we share the Lord's Supper each month here where you get a a mouthful of bread and a sip of grape juice. Everyone was fed as much as they wanted. This was a miracle where Jesus supernaturally multiplies the food such that everyone was fed. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at just feeding everyone. There are 12 basketfuls of food left over at the end. Jesus' abundant provision. There was more food at the end than there was at the start. Jesus provides more than we need. As the people said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They have witnessed a miracle and they know it. And this is a great story of Jesus' provision in a practical way. But Jesus promises not only to meet our physical needs, but also our other needs. In Matthew 6, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Jesus provides us not only with physical bread, but also with spiritual bread. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. God gives us the true bread. He provides for us every day. He wants us to seek him and to be asked to be given our daily bread. As he said in the Lord's Prayer that he himself taught us, give us today our daily bread. He's not just talking about physical provisions of food, of drink, of clothing, of shelter. He's talking about spiritual nutrition. Spiritual bread. Jesus knows and understands that whilst physical provisions are important, it's even more important for him to provide for for us spiritually. So, what can we learn from the feeding of the 10 or 20,000? What can we learn from Jesus performing a miracle by managing to make those five small pita breads and two anchovies feed 16 or 17,000 people? What can we learn from his abundant provision that went above and beyond, where everyone had as much as they wanted and there was loads of food left over? Well, firstly, even when we don't feel like it, go to Jesus. Jesus provides us with the strength to go on. He enables us to run and not grow weary, to walk and not be faint. He is the bread of life who provides us with both physical and spiritual provisions. And he can work with anything we have to give him. The gifts that we have don't have to be the largest loaves or the fanciest fishes. Jesus can put anything we have to good use. 
but he wants us to offer them in the first place. He wants us to give it a go. He wants us to be generous with what we have, with our time, with our money, with our gifts, with our abilities. He doesn't want all of what we've had, all, all of what we have. He wants us to give out of what we do have. And Jesus can work miracles with whatever we give him. He can multiply whatever we give him. Because little in the hands of Jesus is always more than enough. And when we're generous, and when we give, God will use those gifts to make a difference. He can use anything. So I'm going to ask you now, how can you make a difference with your gifts? And what is Jesus calling you to do? Are you waiting for the right moment, or are you waiting for the right circumstances so that you can do it? Are you, are you helping to make this church a healthier church? What can you do to improve the life in your community? Don't wait on God to give you something that you've already got. So what are you going to change this week? How are you going to put your God-given gifts to better use? How are you going to allow Jesus to multiply what you have? If Jesus can use the gifts of five loaves and two fishes from a little boy to feed 15,000 people, how much more can he do with the gifts he's given you? Do you remember Lily, age three and a half? She made a difference by writing a letter to a national company who changed their product. God can use the gifts that he's given us to miraculous effect. And he can use them and he wants us to use them to make a difference and to bless others. So as we leave here today, let's pray that God can help us to be generous with our gifts, whatever they may be, and to make a difference to those around us. Amen. Oh,